this text from Luke with Jesus sending out the 70 got me thinking about how I got into this business, so to speak. Got thinking about my seminary days and how I wound up there, which was a quite a mysterious process. Those days for me are mostly a blur, actually. I mean, I learned the basics. Don't worry about that, I suppose. But I, but a lot of the details have escaped my long-term retention, and I suppose that's in part due to the fact that my decision to attend divinity school at the night, not quite ripe age of 21 came amidst a lot of personal confusion about who I was, where I was headed, what I was going to do with my life. That has contributed to my foggy memory, I think. Although, ironically, I've been on the board now of Yale Divinity School for probably 15 years, and I've often thought how ironic that I wound up there. Still, there are a few moments from those years that have stuck with me, that have been sort of indelibly imprinted on my mind. And they're not big, big moments. They're small things, actually. Dean Harry Adams, a professor of homiletics, was a warm and thoughtful man who was something of a mentor for me. He had a homespun manner and a quiet wisdom about him. One day in the midst of a lecture on sermon preparation, Harry Adams suddenly stopped short and became quite still for a long minute, gazing at us. And then he said, I want to interrupt this lecture with a word about interruptions. They will inevitably happen to you. A day will soon come, if it hasn't yet already, when you believe you are preparing your most erudite and important message upon which hangs the very souls of your congregation, or at least your future ministry among them, when a difficult person barges into your office or a crisis finds you at home and you will need to drop what you're doing and attend to the interruption. Let me tell you right now that your ministry is all about interruptions. He continued, Odd to say in here, I suppose, but your ultimate effectiveness will have very little to do with what you happen to say on any given Sunday. And it will have everything to do with the interruptions. After another long pause, he held us in his gaze as if to punctuate and underline what he had just said. And he picked up his lecture right where he had left it. I don't know why really, but I have a vivid memory of his gaze. And this particular bit of wisdom lodged in my mind that day, and over the years it's focused my thinking in ways I couldn't have initially understood. While in the midst of advancing some aspect of my own agenda, I have discovered that if I'm attentive, interruptions 
have a way of focusing priorities my own frail powers can't quite get right. And interruptions come in all kinds of ways, don't they? What's the worn cliche? Life is what happens when you've planned something else. Such bits of wisdom reach the status of cliche precisely because they're true. Tracking the course of our lives, many of us could say, but for the interruptions to our plans, we would not be the persons we've become. Case in point, I had decided to teach English as a second language in Japan when a packet came in the mail inviting me to go to seminary for a year if given a free ride. That was quite an interruption. And here I am. Now there is very deep theological truth here, friends, actually. As I've heard a lot of persons tell their tale, most spiritual awakenings come as interruptions or surprises, else it wouldn't be an awakening. After the fact, we might see them woven into the fabric of our lives, but at the time these spiritual interruptions occur, they couldn't have been predicted or anticipated, really. In fact, it seems to me that the most spiritually mature persons are those who are in a constant state of expectation for the surprising new thing God intends, regardless of their circumstance. Or maybe to say, within any circumstance. What is God's surprise? Well, as I got thinking about this, it occurred to me that from one vantage point, we could say that Jesus was a great interruption to life in ancient Palestine. And he remains so today. The only difference now is the range of his impact. He interrupted people's lives then, and he does so today. He stirred up political controversy then, he does so today. He challenged the standard social mores of his day, he does so today. I'm thinking we wouldn't remember him at all if he hadn't interrupted the status quo. As his story is told, Jesus interrupted established norms, upending social conventions to create a new sort of community. Everywhere he went announcing the arrival of God's kingdom, he shattered social expectation and cracked the barriers of inclusion and exclusion, of unclean and clean, of who had access to God's love and who was considered a part of God's own family, of who belonged to whom, and so on. He interrupted established religious hierarchies and theologies. Some of you will recall that during his last week alive, he interrupted the activities at the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember how he did that? He overthrew the tables of the money changers there. This was a religious, social, and political scandal, all wrapped up into one. Remember how he summarized the law, which is the essence of our mission statement here. What was the point of the law, he said? The point of the law was to love God above all else and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
He taught that everything else was interpreted through that supreme law of love. Nothing superseded it. We might say that Jesus went around interrupting religious and cultural mores with love. That was the engine of his intervention. Isn't that interesting when you think about it? Of course, he and his closest followers learned that interrupting the established flow of social and religious conventions, even for the most compassionate ends, could be a very dangerous proposition. At the time, the power brokers thought they could put an end to this interruption. You know how that went down. The arrest, crucifixion. But, nevertheless, here we all sit. So you can see how the content of much of our theology is found in the wake of a massive spiritual interruption that continues to shake the foundations around the world. In our Gospel lesson, we heard how Jesus gathered up 70 followers. He, by the way, just prior to this, it says in the scripture that he set his mind to go to Jerusalem. So he's headed towards his final days in Jerusalem. He gathers up 70 followers and sent them out as advance men. And what's interesting is that he warns them that the message they will bear, a message of peace expressly. Remember how he said, when you enter a town or a home, say, peace be among you. That though that is the message they bear, it won't necessarily be well received. Well, we know about that, don't we? I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. In effect, these disciples will physically embody the great law of love, which means they will not follow the common rules of the day of slicing up the population into those who belong to God and those who don't, those who should receive God's grace and those who shouldn't, those who deserve compassionate care and those who don't. A new day is dawning. A new kind of community is being born where no one will fall outside the bounds of God's grace. Everywhere in Jesus' ministry that is evident. Everywhere. Jesus sends them out with that message, interrupting the status quo. The status quo needs to be interrupted. And this message has personal, cultural, religious, and political consequences. Why do I know this? Because I know how Jesus died. He died as a political enemy of the state and of the religious establishment. There is no compartmentalizing here. Such is the transcendent effect of divine love. And this transcendent effect catapulted Christianity from obscurity. 
ultimately sweeping the Roman Empire. As I was thinking about this, I got to reading about the first century after Jesus died. The very first great Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, he was a Roman who was introduced to the Christian path at the age of 30, about 100 years after Jesus' death. He sketched out Christian love this way. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. And a generation later, another Christian apologist named Tertullian reported that the Romans would exclaim, see how the Christians love one another. This was a radical interruption to the Roman social order. Well, it's in this tradition that Christ's church established as one of its four core values the value of dynamic hospitality, which has nothing to do with setting a proper table setting, by the way, and everything to with the essential foundational meaning of loving all persons. We mean this as an extension of this same barrier-breaking compassion Jesus exhibits. If one loves the way Jesus did, one cannot help step out of bounds every now and then of established norms. Stepping on some toes every now and then, interrupting the status, it cannot be helped. So for instance, for instance, we couldn't help but have a contrarian point of view about what's going on at our borders among desperate immigrant families whose children have been taken away. We might have disagreements about specific policy tactics, but followers after the way of Jesus would begin the process by acknowledging our common humanity, our common desire for security and safety and dignity for our children, Starting there leads to a very different set of outcomes than what has evolved, and we should be engaged. All of the ways our culture slices and dices up the population should be interrupted by those who love God above all things and their neighbors as themselves. This is what motivates our work in Washington Heights among a lot of immigrant mothers, desperately poor, with little children. Why we support and have built a church in a desperately poor community outside of Cartagena, Colombia. But now I want to interrupt this sermon for a moment here at the end with the following. No matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done, no matter your current condition, you are God's child.
reaching out with whatever sort of puny faith you might have, there is no prior condition that is a barrier to your inclusion within God's family. Nothing separates you from God's astounding heart of love as revealed in Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing. This is the heart of the kingdom of God. This was a radical, demanding, interrupting message then. And it remains so today. This truth is fuel for the engine that drives this church. This truth interrupts all other seeming important matters. This truth shatters expectations about how we think about ourselves and how we think about the other person sitting in our pew and those who will interrupt our walk home or in countless other moments as this week unfolds. Quite frankly, friends, this truth is shattering the United Methodist Church, even as we speak. This is not for the faint of heart. This love is no sentimental thing. It's earth-shaking, life-changing. It is a phenomenal gift. Awesome. Transcendent. Hear Jesus say to you, daughters, sons, children, your faith (laughs) such as it is, is enough. Go in peace. Be healed of your dis-ease, whatever form that takes. Join your family Live the kingdom ethic.